0: New with us, this is what we do here at the Park Church. We preach through the books of the Bible, and we will be covering verses 26 through uh, the end of Hebrews 10, verse 39. All right, stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. Verse 26 of Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of 2 or 3 witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled or spurned the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified, which he has was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and and, and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. All right, um, so in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, there are five warning passages, okay, five warning passages over the whole book, and today is one of those passages. I don't know if you, you picked up the, the kind of intensity, especially in the, the first part of that, that reading. This is the fourth one, so we've covered three. This is the fourth warning passages, and, and these passages, these five warning passages in Hebrews are specifically and uniquely written to stop us in our tracks, okay? They're written with an intensity that is very purposeful, kind of to to disrupt for us in in our culture, in our day, our busy lives. To interrupt our hurrying from the next thing. Even in this service, I hope that it serves just kind of this moment of going, oh, clarification, like what did did I just hear from the word of God uh, right there? These are meant to get us to think and respond to repent and reorient our lives as believers. These, these passages are hard to hear. They're hard to preach. And this warning today from the beginning of Hebrews 29, 26 through roughly verse 31 may be some of the strongest judgmental language or judgment language in our Bibles outside of Jesus' words himself that he uses throughout the Gospels. One of the most famous and uh, historical sermons ever preached was one that you'll probably know by title at least, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have heard that preached by Jonathan Edwards? Um, And and I think we have in our minds what Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was probably preached like, right? Jonathan Edwards, like, do you you kind of think? But history actually tells us. Jonathan Edwards actually preached that sermon twice. And Jonathan Edwards' style, his preaching style, was actually one that was very, very calm. Almost subdued. And he would preach with, with little papers. His, his, his notes or his sermon was in one hand, and he would flip the Bible or turn something over here with another. Almost like postcard, like, like little post-it notes. He would, he would preach through his sermon. So he would read the sermon right in front of his eyes and just flip through these cards. And so he actually preached this sermon twice. One, um, in front of his church, and, and i got to tell you, history tells us it was, it was a dud. And like you wouldn't know about this sermon had he only preached it once, okay? In fact, he was removed from his church for, for other reasons. Um, uh, nothing to do with his integrity, but everything to do with this, the dysfunction of the church. Um, he then preached it again, and he preached it in the same way, Right? with the post-it cards or his notes in front of him, flipping through them, preaching. And the Spirit of God set those words on fire in the hearts of people. And repentance broke out, and, 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 and sorrow, and, and also joy. Um, Kent Hughes, uh, in his commentary on Hebrews, uh, states about Jonathan Edwards in that moment, caring deeply for the souls of his people more than anything else in the world. It says, and I quote, He was less concerned with God's wrath in that sermon than he was with his grace. So we hear the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and we think, man, that must have majored on hell, right? No, it really majored on grace. It majored on the grace of Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says... He says, which, which was freely extended to sinners. That grace was freely extended to sinners who repented. Jonathan Edwards, he says, gave his people a whiff of, of sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. Like, I love that picture, like a whiff of sulfur so that we might inhale deeply the fragrances of grace. That same heartbeat echoes for me here with the writer, and here in this passage in Hebrews, this fourth warning. And, and let me tell you, it's good for us to sit in some of the heaviness and weight of these kinds of passages, that we might see God's grace very clearly, that we might be warned very clearly. And maybe uh, I would warn us, even as we find ourselves in, in obviously the Western or American culture, this is not popular within church. To sit under the weight of these kind of texts. Because there's different fears or there's different motivations. But I want us to do that, especially early on in this text. Because the theme of the first, essentially, three or four verses is this. Apostasy. Apostasy. Now, probably not a word you used this week. I hope you didn't use it this week. Maybe you did. Um, but two words often get thrown around the church. A heresy and apostasy to describe someone or to describe an errant doctrine of theology. I would say um, we probably should use those very sparingly, like very rare, okay? Is something actually heretical or is someone actually uh, apostate or has uh, apostasy has actually occurred? And I would argue that you and I are actually not in a position to judge whether or not someone is uh, committing apostasy. And I'll explain that here uh, from Hebrews 10. But uh, since that is a word that we're not familiar with by definition, I want to give a definition uh, from uh, Andy Nicelli. I thought this was a very good definition of apostasy because verses 26 to 31, if you're taking notes, give us evidence of apostasy. What does it look like? This is the warning for us. This is the warning toward our hearts. But here's the definition of apostasy. Apostasy is decisively turning away from the faith. An apostate ...is a person who once claimed to be a Christian... ...but has irreversibly abandoned and renounced Orthodox Christianity. Okay? So pause right there. I'm going to lose some of you because I'm going to talk about irreversibility... ...or use the word irreversibility as it relates to true apostasy... ...and as it relates to salvation. But go with me. Go with me. we've talked about this already in Hebrews. Verse 26. So let's walk through these evidences... Of Apostasy. Verse 26. The first evidence and the lead evidence is this. Sinning deliberately. Sinning deliberately. It's right there in our text. Now this is different, hear me, this is different than what Martin Luther talks about for believers. Where he says, Martin Luther, the great reformer says that we are simultaneously sinners and saints. And we live in this tension, something we've established as believers in Christ. We still have this flesh suit, if you will, that we still wrestle with, that we still fight, right? We fall into sin and then we find ourselves repenting and turning away and turning to the Lord. This is not talking about that. This is talking about deliberate, willful, habitual, continual sin, not obeying what you know to be consistent with the heart and word of God continually. Did you see in verse 26, look at it. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. So it's not an absence of knowledge that's present. It's not an absence of the actual truth, the the true gospel, the, the full counsel, if you will, of the word of God being displayed before you, and actually maybe even intellectual assent to it going, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I understand that. But what is apparent and evident in your life is deliberate and willful, continual pattern of sin. First John, which was the very first book we preached through here at the Park Church, um, it puts it like this in 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him In Christ. No no one who is is applying John 15, right? That, that, That abiding chapter, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That is not talking about perfectionism. That is talking about deliberately and willfully sinning against the God that you profess or the truth that you know. That is apostasy. That is going, I know the truth, and I am willfully choosing to go against it. I am willfully and continually rejecting that truth. And the outcome, Hebrews 10 tells us, and this is kind of those sulfurs, if you will. The outcome is, look at it in your text, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There no longer remains a sacrifice for you. If you continually and deliberately and habitually reject the truth of God, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. Why? Because you have rejected the one true sacrifice. There is only, this is Hebrews, guys. There is how, how many sacrifices for sin, ultimately? One. Jesus. And you have rejected him over and over again. And then it goes on to talk about what this judgment looks like. And it's interesting the language it uses. It uses the old covenant language versus the new covenant language. And this ties to the whole theme of the book, in fact, right? That Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Now think about this. If you reject the greater sacrifice, what do you think the judgment is going to be? Hebrews 10 tells us, even greater. Warning. You see, there are, in verse 29, there are three massive indictments around what this apostasy looks like. This is what's actually taking place in your heart and in your life when this is happening and this is occurring. Look at it, verse, verse 29, I want us to walk through this. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has three indictments here? Trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now, that's what my ESV Bible says. I think even the screen says 29, uh, spurned the Son of God. How many of your your, your translations say probably spurned? Those two together are really, really accurate. You spurn the Son of God literally means that someone who deliberately continues on sinning, deliberately rejects the truth that they have received, is trampling underfoot the son of god like what do you trample under your foot like, what what do you walk on dirt right in this dust you're treating him like nothing right uh, my my boys honestly that they they wrestle a lot um, and uh, the, the, i i have a i have a 6 year old and a 3 year old and 6 year old always wins right most of the time he wins um, But somehow, uh, every fight ends with, like, somebody being stepped on, doesn't it, right? Like, the victor is, like, the one who, like, puts their foot on it. You know what this is claiming? When you trample underfoot the Son of God, you're claiming that you're the victor, that you're supreme, that you're the one in charge. You are lowercase l, Lord. You're supreme. That's what's taking place here. When you deliberately keep on sinning, when you go against the will of God, when you go against the truth of God that you know, and you continue in that path, here is how you're treating the son of God, like dirt. And some of us like this, like you're shuddering. You should be. But he keeps going on. And he's, listen to me, he's warning, the writer of Hebrews is warning this church. He's warning us in how we view and treat Jesus. He says, you've spurned the Son of God. You have the second indictment. Look at this. You've profaned the blood of the covenant. Profaned. Now, we think of it in terms of, like, profanity. That's not the word here. When you profane the covenant here, the word profaned means you've made common. You've made it routine. The blood of the covenant. This is talking about the new covenant of Jesus Christ. You've just made it common. Literally, literally the most uncommon thing, the most extraordinary thing on the planet, the saving, atoning worth of Jesus Christ, you've just said, treat it in an indifferent way. I mean, the whole point, again, of Hebrews is this message. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He is anything but common. And so please, don't treat him that way. Don't treat his new covenant that way. In apostasy, that's what's taking place. The knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the new covenant is treated as common. And the next thing, you have outraged the spirit of grace. Now, this is a unique phrase, the spirit of grace. That uh, title For the Holy Spirit is not used anywhere else. Anywhere else in all of your Bible, but that is what it's talking about. It is talking about an insulting of the Holy Spirit. This is very Trinitarian, by the way, as well, right? The writer of Hebrews is is very skilled and crafted in his writing, right? The Son of God, the Son of God the Father, the blood of Jesus, and now you're insulting the Holy Spirit, right? Like they just indict on the whole trifecta of the Trinity, right? So like there's no, there's no facet, no wiggle room here. This is talking about the abuse of grace. The reason it would use this title here of the Holy Spirit is because what the Holy Spirit does in his job and one of his responsibilities is that he illuminates the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so in apostasy, it's going, you have insulted that primary work of The Holy Spirit, you have abused grace. One Christian cynic said one time, he'll forgive me, talking about God. That's his job. Have you heard that quote before? Sometimes that's credited to to Christians. That's, That's actually a Christian cynic said that. He'll forgive me. That's his job. Listen, it is the Holy Spirit that applies the grace of Jesus to our lives in apostasy, in deliberately sinning, and running from the truth that you know, you are insulting the spirit of grace. And then verse 31, he kind of drops the hammer, if you will. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Warning, listen, church, person, wherever you are, listen. And this makes, verse 31 makes two very clear statements about God. One, that he's alive. And two, that he's active and he's judge. And it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands with those kind of realities being true of your life. You don't want that. I I, I don't want that. And then verse 32. But, Man, I love that. But it's, it's like now he turns his tone, okay? He shifts his tone. Okay, I know how hard that was to hear. I know, I know how hard that warning is. And for some of you, the Holy Spirit's going to use it to wake you up to the goodness and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who have been awakened to that, right? Those of you that know the truth of God, maybe you're struggling, but you know the truth of God. Here is his encouragement. Here's going to be now his gospel overflow, right? Those fragrances of grace that he wants us to, to breathe deeply in of. He goes, but you recall the former days when after you were enlightened, so after you have came to faith in Jesus Christ, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So he moves from, hear this, he moves from the evidence of apostasy now to the evidence of perseverance in the very same section, What does it look like for somebody who is endeavoring? What does it look like for somebody who is persevering in Christ Jesus? The first evidence he gives is this, endurance through hardship. You want to know that you're Christ? You want to know that you're being held by him? Here's what it looks like, endurance. And I would argue that true endurance, true gospel endurance, is only fully and truly seen in suffering and in struggle. It's only seen there, right? If your whole life is lived on an 80-degree beach, right, with a cool, you know, northwest breeze coming over you with a nice drink in your hand, right? Like, that's not enduring. That's enjoying, but that's not enduring. And that's not what Hebrews talks about. Endurance is walking through hardship, struggle, and suffering and still the same void, the, the lips. What's coming out of your lips is this, God, you are good, God, you are faithful. God, you are moving in spite of what surrounds me. Alright, right? If I'm a runner, how do I know I have endurance? How do I know I have endurance? Distance and time, right? Right? Like nobody finishes the, the you know the 40-yard dash is like, dude, great endurance. No, what do they say to that person? Speed. Woo! Sprint, you sprint, man. No, but what the Bible talks about is that this life is not a sprint. This life is a marathon, uphills, downhills, through the wilderness, right? Yes, in in those sunny moments of rejoicing. But when it talks about proof of our salvation, it looks at endurance and hardships. And here's what Hebrews 10 is pointing to, going, you have been faithful to endure hardships, hard things. And I look around this room, I even look at the Twymans who we just commissioned out. Stories and testimonies of God's faithful hand upon people, endurance in their lives through incredibly hard things—sickness, loss, tragedy, addiction. Some of you, you're still in process. You're still in, you're you're enduring. But this next one kind of caught me as surprising as an evidence of perseverance, and it's what's said here in verse thirty-four. So it says, for you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. An evidence of perseverance, an evidence of true saving faith in your life and in my life is endurance, yes. And I think we all understand that to some extent. But now it just pointed to compassion. A heart that's changed, actually changed. Compassion toward those who are suffering. Did you get that? Like, but, but, but those of you who haven't been enlightened by the truth, those of you who have heard the truth in Christ has changed your heart, you now not only have endurance, you have compassion toward those who are suffering, both inside and outside the church. Now, why would that be an evidence? Well, I think that's an evidence because our hearts are not naturally compassionate with gospel compassion. They're naturally compassionate, if you will, to the place that it serves me, that it serves my emotion, it serves my agenda. I would also say that if you really drill down on your hearts as it relates to compassion, we actually really have to fight for true gospel compassion. Or our hearts have a tendency to lean towards judgmentalism or cynicism toward those who are suffering. You don't have to raise your hand, but any of you ever been there? Saying those things that you would never say out loud (laughs) in front of a group. But thinking them or believing them about people who are suffering. Compassion toward those who are suffering. Again, I could point to stories and testimonies within this faith family of true gospel compassion. True hearts that have been changed by the radical grace and mercy of Jesus with the evidence of loving people. Remember last week? How and what are we to spur one another toward? Love and good works in the same chapter guys in the third evidence um, it says so verse 34 for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one you hear that evidence in there what was the evidence there that you knew what really mattered That as a believer, as someone who has a new heart given by Christ, you actually know. You have a knowledge of what really matters. You knew you had a better possession, that there is something more valuable than your freedom and your property. Those were the two things listed there, okay? I'm not just going off on a tangent here, even though I could go off on a tangent here, okay? It says you visited people in prison, they were incarcerated, not because they did something, right? Not not, not because, they weren't incarcerated because they committed a crime. They were incarcerated for their faith in Jesus Christ that they wouldn't back down from. You visited them in prison. And then it said that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. So my tangent would be this. Do you really believe that there is something more valuable than your little, literal physical freedom and your property? I, I can hear the American groans now. I hear it. Okay. Email me, that's fine. But let me say it again there's something far more valuable than your literal physical freedom and your stuff. And what's more valuable than those two things because they're temporal? They're fleeting. They can be taken away in a minute. What's more valuable than all of that is what can't be taken away. Your soul. Right? This is is Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, listen, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Like, do you believe that you as a Christian have what's ahead of you is far better than the reality of what you're living in right now. I hope so. I hope so. And when Christ has really captured your heart and the evidence of that per- preserving faith is this, that you have a knowledge of what really matters in this life. And then verse 35, therefore, in light of those evidences, and listen, those evidences, I, w- I wanna be clear with you this morning. Those evidences are so true in so many of your lives. Right? But he still encourages. I think that the the audience he's writing to, this group of Jewish Christians, I think he's, he's encouraging them as well. He says, therefore, here's what I want you to do don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What is their confidence? Christ Jesus. Jesus. The persecution for this audience written in Hebrews is worse than what they're actually facing when they're reading the letter. It's going to be actually martyrdom. We've talked about that. And the temptation for them, for these Jewish Christians, is to revert back to Judaism, just to be—I just want to be released from this pain, right? I don't want to go through this. I don't want to walk through this. And the writer of Hebrews is going, "Don't throw away your confidence in Christ." Now, I don't think our uh, our struggle will be to revert back to Judaism here in Jewish culture. Culture and customs. I don't think it'll be reverting back to the actual old covenant that they were facing. Oh, but we have our own form of the old covenant. We have our own temptations to revert back to, don't we? And they gravitate around self saving and self serving ways. That's the version of our old covenant. That For the sake of of ease and for the sake of preference, we will cast off that which we know to be true and pursue the easy road. And here is the writer of Hebrews going, no, don't throw off your confidence. Hold fast. Hold fast to that which you know is true. Ways that we can throw off our confidence is by not recounting God's faithfulness in our lives. Forgetting God's faithfulness. In the Old Testament, they set up altars. What were the reason for those altars? That they would go back to them and they'd go, here in this place, do you remember what God did? Do you remember how God saved? Do you remember how God moved, right? They didn't worship the altar, right? They didn't go, man, that pile of rocks, the rocks are... Off. No, they were going, no, this is, this is a memorial. This reminds us of a God who is faithful, right? That's how our confidence grows. Another way that, that, that we can guard our confidence not being thrown off is by being in a community of true believers, by being around other brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews 10, what we talked about for two the last two weeks, we need each other to stir up the confidence and be a physical reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our physical freedom being taken, in spite of the plundering of our goods. That's the only way I count it all as joy. And then verse 36. He says, notice this. After talking about endurance, he says, for you have need of endurance. So it's not enough just to go, yeah, I'm enduring. No, you need more endurance. No, you, you, you need more and more endurance. And hear this about endurance. Endurance is both a gift given by God and a skill or a muscle developed in us. It is something we both receive as a gift in Christ and grow up in it. And we can't do this alone. We don't develop that muscle in isolation. It takes us pressing together. I love verse 32. It says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Like I, I love that encouragement this morning. As I look around this church over the last two plus years, we've all, in some form or fashion, are going or have gone, or will go through something very difficult. And what I can stand up here and see and say to each and every one of us with all conviction is that corporately, we've grown stronger in the grace of Christ. We've grown stronger in his mercy and in his love. One of the things, and I'll end here, one of the things Hebrews 10 is really fighting against is easy believism. False conversion, if you will. I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, therefore I'm saved. Right? Listen to me. Um, None of those things are wrong or erroneous. The problem is they don't show true conversion and they don't show true submission to Jesus. I'm asked oftentimes, Kyle, how do I know... I'm saved. Well, what does the Bible say? In essence, this is what the Bible says. Faithfulness over time to Jesus. Faithful affection and obedience to Jesus over time. Doesn't that define endurance? God-given faith to obey what is demonstrated over time and testing after surrender and submission to Jesus. Kyle, but Romans 9, uh, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Yes. But how do you know that that's actually taken place? The fruit of your life. The evidence of Perseverance so hear me, um, submission and surrender to Jesus, true salvation, real preserving and persevering salvation is proven, is seen over time and testing. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper and come down to take the body and blood of Christ together as a community. And some of you, you might hear this message through a works-based lens. That's not what I'm talking about. The message of the gospel is this. On your own, you can't persevere. Philippians 1 puts it like this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So when you are truly saved, let me tell you what is irreversible. That Christ has plucked you out, he has redeemed you, he has put you into his fold. And there is no way, Hebrews has already told us this, there is no way that that is reversible. What a confidence we have as believers. But there must be these moments in our lives where we don't presume upon the salvation of Jesus Christ but we actually look at the evidence and fruit of our lives and go, Lord, am I truly honoring you? Am I truly obeying you? Do I just have intellectual knowledge of you or has that moved to my heart and my feet where I'm actually obeying you? And one of the key indicators of that is, to go back to verse 26, is where do you turn when you sin? When you fall? Is your impulse to run to God or to hide. As a believer with a new heart, your impulse is to run to God because you know you will be met there with his love, his grace, and his mercy. Even thinking about how we're going to approach these tables this morning, do you run to these tables to partake in the new covenant blood of Jesus Christ that saves you and redeems you? Or do you come wondering Questioning maybe even, am I really saved? Listen, you can have the confidence this morning that you would, as Romans 9 says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord.